So the last time that we gathered, we took a look at Matthew chapter 16. And we covered all of the verses of that chapter except for verse 28. As I told you the, the last time that the, that verse is better discussed, the last verse of chapter 16 is better discussed within the context of chapter 17 of Matthew. But let's start this morning in chapter 16, looking at that verse, verse 28. So if you haven't opened your Bibles up there, that's where we're going to be, Matthew chapter 16, and then going on into chapter 17. So in Matthew chapter 16 and down in verse 28, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, Jesus was here speaking to his disciples He said that some of them would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, coming in his kingdom. Now, just keep all of that in mind because I'm going to come back to it. But let's go ahead now and start reading in chapter 17 and verse 1. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, And John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish Let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, as often is with the case with Peter and some of the other disciples as well, they often jump to conclusions sometimes. Here, Peter was wanting to establish a religion, in a sense, establish establish a religious spot or or you know make this spot someplace holy or whatever it may be but this is not what was going on here and not what Jesus intended for them verse 5 continues and says while he was speaking behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Okay, so we see what just took place there, right? Uh, Right before the eyes of Peter, James, and John, Jesus was transfigured. And they saw Moses and Elijah standing there. The Greek word that is used there for the word transfigured uh, is the word metamorpho, 
metamorphao, and it speaks of a transformation. Okay, Jesus was changed right before their eyes by the power of the Father God. The divine brightness of God shone upon him. And if you look back again now at chapter 16 and verse 28, we see again where Jesus told them that some of them would not uh, see death or taste death until they saw him coming into his kingdom. And one of those that were on the mountain of the transfiguration with Jesus was, of course, Peter, we saw there, right? And we have a written account from Peter about this transfiguration that we can read about in 2 Peter chapter 1. So I want you to go ahead and mark this page in your Bible because we're going to come back to it. But I want you to turn toward the back of your Bible and I want you to find uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look down and we'll start reading in verse 13. So Second Peter 1 13. Peter says, Yes, I, I think it's right. As long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So just pause real quickly right here on this, because Peter is just simply saying in his writing here that he knew his life was quickly coming to an end. And he wanted to be sure that they kept in mind the facts about Jesus Christ, the life he lived, the, the death he died, and the fact that he rose again from the dead, and the fact that he is coming again, right? And Peter ensured that we'd always have these reminders of all these things, not just Peter, but all the disciples, many of the disciples, I should say, did as well, and they wrote things down. And you and I still have these writings to remind us here of all of these things, and we have it right here in the pages of our Bibles, okay? Even after Peter and the other disciples have long since died. But Peter continues on here in verse 16, and he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but, he says, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, remember, Peter was one of the ones present there at the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. He was one of the eyewitnesses. And he's confirming the story here. Verse 17, he says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son 
in whom I am well pleased. So we read there back in Matthew chapter um, 17, right? And verse 5, didn't we? Peter says here, And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so Peter is confirming that whole story here. And do you see what I'm pointing out to you here this morning is that Jesus told the disciples that some of them would see this time come. It wasn't all of them. It was Peter, James, and John, right? And it was only six days later after he told them that story that a few of them saw his glory. He was transformed right before their eyes. So this is why I left verse 28 of chapter 16 to be discussed here within the context of chapter 17 of the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, And if you haven't done so yet, please go ahead and turn back to Matthew chapter 17. And just a reminder here, as I bring up the fact that I left verse 28 to be discussed here in chapter 17 instead of in discussing it the last time we gathered in chapter 16. Just a reminder that to always keep in mind when you're reading the Bible, you're studying the Bible, that of course we have it now broken up into chapters and verses, but this is only for our reference, for our ease of use. So that I can say to you, turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 28 or whatever. That's the only reason that it's there. Okay, It wasn't originally written, the letter, Matthew, for example, wasn't originally written with all these chapter breaks and verses. It was just one continuous writing. So when you study the Bible, you have to read it as such. That's why it was okay for me to take verse 28 and move it and study it and talk about it over in chapter 17 and rather than in chapter 16, right? But let's continue on here in chapter 17 of Matthew and pick it up down in verse 9. It says, Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now we went, we just went and read uh, 2 Peter, right? Chapter 1 where the story was told by Peter. But that, of course, was after Jesus had risen from the dead that Peter wrote that. So Peter didn't break the command of Jesus here by telling the story. It was after he had risen from the dead, as Jesus said to do. And his disciples in verse 10 asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, I want you to go ahead and pause here again. And I want you to turn to the Old Testament book of Malachi. You don't have to go very far back because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So it's the book in your Bibles just before the book of Matthew here. Uh, And we're going, I want you to find Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, and we're going to look down and we'll start reading at verse 5. So I'll read verse 5 and 6 here. It says, 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So that's what the disciples of Jesus were referring to in Matthew chapter 17 and verse uh, 10, when they asked Jesus, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, they were saying, Lord, why did the prophet Malachi write this? Why did the scribes, you know, write this down so that we could read this today? What is this all about, right? And as we flip back to Matthew chapter 17 again, Jesus answers his disciples in verse 11, And it says, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. You see, I won't have you turn there, but the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, speaking of John the Baptist, says that he will also go before him, speaking of going before Jesus, the Messiah. Again, this is in Luke chapter 1 verse 17. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So that prophecy that we read in Malachi was really about John the Baptist. He went forth in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. In other words, he was a a lot like Elijah in the way that God empowered him and used him. And what did John the Baptist do? Well, he told people to turn, didn't he? To repent, to change their hearts, to get ready for the coming of the Lord. Today, that is still how a heart gets ready to receive the Lord. One must first repent that is to turn from their sin and to turn their hearts to God and then they can receive the Lord into their hearts. It all starts with repentance. No preaching of the gospel should leave out the fact that there needs to be repentance from sin. You need to turn. And John the Baptist prepared the way by preaching repentance and baptizing people to be ready to receive the Lord. And then the story moves on in verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now pause right there. So we see a story here of a boy that is greatly tormented, 
falling into fire, suffering burns, and falling into water with the danger of drowning. His father is pleading for mercy, wanting for his son to be set free from this. The man goes on to explain in verse 16, says to Jesus, so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. So the disciples of Jesus are standing there and they're in a sense, right? They're listening to this man and in a sense, they're getting ratted out by this poor man that is desperate to just see his son made well. And he's telling them your disciples couldn't cure him. And Jesus will now rebuke his disciples for this. In verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. So we see that this epilepsy in this case was not just a medical condition, but a spiritual condition. It was demonically motivated. And Jesus knew this. And maybe so did his disciples, but they couldn't do anything about it. The disciples couldn't. And Jesus calls them faithless. In other words, they don't have a strong enough faith to do what Jesus did. And I'm sure this bothered them because verse 19 says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? You see, I'm sure the disciples of Jesus really wanted to help this man. That man that desperately pleaded with them. They wanted to help him, I'm sure. Well, now we'll... we'll We'll see the reason here why they couldn't do it in verse 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For shortly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, remember they just came down the mountain, so they're at the base of the mountain here, right? If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now it's important to note here that that word faith, as you see it there in verse 20, in the Greek is the word pistis, right? And it speaks of conviction. That's what that word means, conviction. Jesus was pointing out to the disciples that they did not have enough conviction when they were trying to cast out that demon from that boy. They were not convinced enough in their hearts that they could cast out the demon. And of course, Jesus was. And remember, these disciples, and this is what you have to keep in mind when you read these scriptures in their context, right? These disciples are still in training, okay? That is, they are still learning and they are still growing, and as you read on, you'll see them change, right? They were were now going to spend their lives in service to the Lord, but they were growing, and they were learning. They were in training. Jesus is pointing out, though, at this point in their lives, how small 
their faith really was. It was smaller than a mustard seed in the analogy that Jesus uses here because if they were more convicted in their faith, it would only take just a little bit of faith for them to handle problems that were the size of a mountain is what Jesus is saying. Just a little bit of faith to to handle mountain-sized problems, right? And we too need to learn that we need to grow in our faith today. We need to be committed to grow in our faith. We need to grow in our conviction of the power of God in our lives and what He can do in us and through us today. We don't know all the details of the lives of all of the disciples of Jesus back then. But we do know what it is that keeps us from being a people of strong faith, right? If we would just just make a spirit-led life our focus, then there is no limit to what God will do in us and through us, right? But it takes dedication. It takes conviction. If you were to compare how much time you spend in front of the TV and how much time you spend in the Bible and then you were to draw up a bar chart or a graph on what that looked like, what would be the balance? What what would it look like? Time in front of the television or whatever. I'm not just picking on TV, but, you know, by comparison to the time we spend or you spend, I spend in the Word of God, right? If we compare the time that we spend thinking, just sitting around maybe thinking, to the time that we spend praying, what would that chart look like? What would that graph look like? Right? So the question is, what is our faith? What is our conviction? How dedicated are we? Right? Faith is action. Faith is displayed in works that we do. Okay, And Jesus says here in verse 21, right? He says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So in other words, Jesus is saying it takes more conviction. It takes more dedication. God is big enough to do whatever, but is our faith big enough? Is our conviction strong enough? Do you ever fast? Are you really dedicated in prayer? This is what Jesus is rebuking his disciples here for not being, not being convicted enough. It's just a little, faith is powerful. And just a little bit of it goes a long way to to move mountains in your life, per se, right? Mountain-sized problems. Verse 22, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. 
So troubled times were ahead. And these disciples were very, very sorrowful upon receiving the news that Jesus was going to be killed. They were about to have to mature in their faith really fast. They were going to be tested. And they were going to learn a lot from Jesus as time went on here. Peter was about to have a real faith-increasing moment. And we'll see that as we read on. Verse 24, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take custom or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. So when Peter gave the quick answer, Yes, there in verse 25, it shows that his thoughts on the matter were not the Lord's thoughts on the matter. But Jesus was still training these disciples of his, right? Again, they're still in training. They're still learning. They're still growing. And he further explains to Peter that because he was the son of God and God owns everything, Jesus really wasn't obligated to pay anything when it came to the tax or anything else for that matter. But then in verse 27, Jesus says, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Wow. Now wouldn't that increase the faith of Peter? Now, this is just pure speculation, so forgive me for this, but seeing all that the disciples were learning in such a short period of time, Peter must have been like, wait, what did you say? What did you want me to do, Jesus? Did you say go catch a fish and get a coin out of the fish's mouth? I don't think I I heard you right, Lord. It sounded like you said go get a coin from a fish, right? But it was no joke, right? That's what Jesus said, and that's what Peter did. And that is how the Lord provided for that situation. But there's a lot that we can glean from this story, right? It, it could have been, and again, this is just speculation, but just thinking through it, right? It could have been that one day someone dropped a coin in the sea, either on purpose or by accident, a fish swallowed up that coin, and that fish had yet to been caught by a fisherman. Maybe it right, had not been caught yet because the reason for it to be caught had not yet happened, right? God could have directed that person to drop that coin in the sea and then directed that fish to swallow it up, and Jesus, being God in the flesh, knew where it was. Right? Again, just pure speculation on my part, 
But is our faith big enough to believe that God has this kind of control? He sees everything. He knows everything because he indeed does. He can do anything. Now, it could have been that there was no coin in that fish's mouth until the moment that Peter went there to catch it. And Jesus being God in the flesh could have had it be there for that specific time. And this too is speculation, right? But the Bible is silent on all of this, but the bottom line for you and me is that God provides for those that are doing His will, those that are serving the Lord, those that are walking by faith in Him, those that are working for His kingdom and for His glory. This is what the disciples of Jesus were doing, of course. Yeah, they had a lot to learn and a long way to grow. Their their faith was weak. They lacked in faith in many ways. But the time that they spent with Jesus, and this is important, the time that they spent with Jesus, the more that they heard and obeyed His words, the bigger and bigger their faith got because they saw him move. They trusted in him and they trusted in his word. They would go on to have faith of mountain-sized proportions, right? They would go on to heal the sick, the disciples of Jesus, and they would go on to cast out demons. Their faith continued to grow. They would become people that would fast, and be diligent in prayer. Their conviction, their faith in God could could and would grow stronger. How about us, right? How convicted are we? How committed are we? Will we spend time in the Word of God? Will we spend time fasting and praying? Will we take steps of faith? Will we read the words of the Lord and obey the words of the Lord? Do what he says, actually live it out. You see, only then will we see the power of God at work in our lives. The Lord wants it for us. He wants us to mature in the faith, to get stronger, to be able to handle mountain-sized problems. But it's really up to us. And Jesus rebuked his disciples for their conviction. He wanted them to grow and he wants us to grow. If you've come to Jesus, if you've repented of your sin, you've placed your life in his hand and you want to be his servant in his kingdom, he wants you to grow. And of course, if you've not come to that place and you're listening to this message then today is the day of salvation to you, for you. You can come to Jesus today. You can repent and come to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. It is truth. It is powerful. It cuts. It works within us, Lord. It cuts us deep. It goes deep within us, sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us comfortless. You have not left us alone. You've given us of your Holy Spirit who teaches us, 
who brings us into remembrance of all things that you said and you did, Lord. So we thank you for your holy word and thank you that we can have this time to today just to study it here, Lord. And I pray that all of us will go deeper in our walks with you, deeper in our study of the word, just that we would grow in the knowledge of you and grow in our faith, grow in our conviction, Lord, to live this life for your glory. Thank you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.